Well, you can open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3 this morning as we're, we're almost done. We're almost done with this book of Titus, which we started late last year. As you're opening, I'm not sure about you guys, but I, I've been really blessed and fortunate enough over the years to go on several great vacations. And who doesn't love a good vacation? I remember going to Washington, D.C. with my sixth grade class as a little kid, and that was my first trip without my parents, which is always exciting for any kid when you're going on a trip away from home. We did an Alaskan cruise when I was in ninth grade, and we did a European cruise when I was in 11th grade, and I was so fortunate to be able to go on that. Italy, France, Spain, Morocco, then Portugal, and we even got to go to my grandma's hometown that she grew up in in Italy before she immigrated to America. It's called Campobasso. That was cool. Then later, Angel and I were blessed with the opportunity to go to Tahiti and Bora Bora on our honeymoon. And that was a trip we'll never forget and we're thankful for because I'm pretty sure we'll never be able to go back and afford that trip ever again on our own. But nonetheless, we got to stay in one of those overwater bungalows, you know, the one that are right on the water where you just kind of, op- I don't even mean to make you jealous, but you just open the back door and you just walk right into the warm kind of emerald water. One of those. Two Novembers ago, Angel and I were again blessed with the opportunity opportunity to go to Taiwan and Japan. And that was one of our favorite trips. Angel was doing wedding planning. She was planning this wedding in Taiwan. This is a rather large wedding. So all of our expenses were, were paid for. And so we figured, hey, while we're there, let's hop over to Japan. And so we did that for some time. And that was really fun. Japan is definitely one of our favorite places now. And hopefully one day we'll we'll go back. We'll be able to go back. And one other place Angel and I love visiting is Disney World. Sad to admit, maybe for some, but we we love all things Disney. And we went to Disneyland in L.A. a lot when we were down there. But twice, on two occasions, we've been to Disney World in Florida. First time, I remember, we went with a group of friends. And that was a lot of fun. However, on that first trip, I, I distinctly remember, that was the first time ever that I experienced the Christian Vacation Syndrome. You know what I'm talking about? Probably not because I just made that up, but I'll tell you. That's where Christians go on vacation and end up taking a vacation from being Christians. It's not that I sunk into immorality during the trip. No, it's just that essentially for the entire week, I pretty much ignored God. I was so distracted with the fun of the vacation that I forgot about God. I just just wasn't thinking about him. It wasn't crossing my mind. Every day we would wake up super early, go to all the amusement parks at opening time, run around at full speed, making sure we saw everything and experienced everything. We'd have dinner, stay till the park closed, return to the hotel room, sleep, and do it all over again. And the thing about Disney World, there's just so much to do. There's four huge theme parks, two huge water parks, downtown Disney. There's like so much going on. It's so full of stuff and attractions and entertainment. And it's very carefully crafted to just suck you in. That's that's the point. And it can be very distracting. And if you're not careful, as I wasn't that first time, it can even distract you from God. It's kind of like Pleasure Island, which ironically enough is from Disney's Pinocchio, at least. They popularized it. And Pleasure Island, if you remember, it was this place where the young boys could go and they could just do whatever they wanted. They could just do anything, all the pleasure they wanted, the entertainment, the fun and games. Their life was 
was just pleasure. However, there, were, there was an unadvertised curse on Pleasure Island. So as these boys indulged in these pleasures, they started to physically transform into donkeys. And there was no escaping this fate. And when the transformation was complete, they were trapped and they were enslaved, sent to the coal mines. Christians are not immune to this. This is what happens to some Christians when they go on vacation. They get sucked into the distractions or the pleasures of the world, which oftentimes they're not even bad in and of themselves. But they too can get trapped and ensnared and distracted from the things of the Lord. To make matters worse, this syndrome affects some Christians not just when they're on vacation, but each and every day. The constant intake of of TV, movies, games, sports, entertainment, etc., just bogs them down, sucks them in, fills their mind, and entraps them. They become distracted, and they forget God. They forget Christ. They forget the cross. They forget to do what God created them and saved them to do. It just escapes their mind because their mind is elsewhere. If you've been a Christian for a long time, then surely you're familiar with this affliction. So what can you do about it? How can you stop it? How can you keep it from happening? Well, you need reminders. You need reminders. This is why God has included so many reminders in his word. God doesn't want us to go a single day without encountering him and remembering the transforming truth of the gospel. He wants us to constantly be encountering him in his word and to live accordingly. Last week we studied Titus 3, 3-7, where we began to, where we encountered several essential truths that much that must never be forgotten. And these are some of the reminders that God has included in his word so that we would never stop thinking about these things. And like the boys on Pleasure Island, there are disastrous consequences for Christians who, who forget, who get distracted by the world and forget God and his truth. And this is why we need to be reminded. This is why we have Titus 3, 3-7. These are things never to forget. And in particular, last time, we set out to observe three essential reminders that should change the way you live. Three essential reminders that should change the way you live. Last time, we covered the first one. We just got through one of them, which was remember who you were. Remember who you were. Look at verse 3. He says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Here in that, in that verse, we found seven aspects of our old self. That, that's who we used to be. That's how we once lived. We were just as lost and just as depraved as every other unbeliever in the world. And remembering where we came from and who we used to be like this is so critical for developing a compassion for the lost and for leading to evangelism to the lost. Remembering who you were should drive you to not sit idly by while those around you sit dead in their sins and are perishing. And so that was our first reminder. Remember who you were. 
Remember where you came from. Remember what God saved you out of. But that's not the only reminder in our, in our passage. There's two more. In verses 4 and following, we want to pick up where we left off now and continue on with these reminders, these three critical reminders. And so let's do that. So the second now, the second reminder that you can't bear to forget from verses 4 through 6, remember what happened to you. First was remember who you were. Now, secondly, remember what happened to you from verses 4 through 6. Let's read those together. But he says, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. After you remember who you were, he says next, you must remember what happened to you. And, and what is it? What, what did happen to you? In a word, it, it's salvation. Salvation happened to you. If you remember from last time, our first reminder was summed up in verse 3 by five words. For we also once were. And now our second reminder is summed up in verse 5 by three words. What are they? He saved us. That's it. He saved us. That's a reminder. Perhaps the most essential reminder in the Christian faith. He saved us. We didn't save ourselves. Nobody else saved us. It was God. God alone saved us. Saved us from sin, from hell, from wrath, from judgment, from the second death. He saved us, and that's the only thing that makes us different from those in verse 3, from the rest of the world, from whom we used to be. Only difference is three words. He saved us. Now, I want you to notice this. Notice how God-centered this salvation is. The whole Trinity is involved, and all the way through this passage, God is sovereignly responsible for bringing about our salvation. In fact, here's what I want to do. I just want to read these verses again, 4 through 6. I'm going to read them with emphasis, so listen to how I read. But pay attention and see just how God's sovereignty in our salvation is displayed here. How he's the one bringing this about. Look at verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done, in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Did you notice everything God does in this passage? It's active. God shows kindness. God has love. God has mercy. God saves. God washes. God regenerates. God pours out the Spirit. God justifies. God makes us heirs. You see that? Salvation, it's a God thing. Also notice this. Whereas everything God does in this passage is 100% active, 
everything we do in this passage is 100% passive. And that just means we're the recipients. We're, We're sitting by while God is doing the work. We were saved. We were washed and regenerated. We were given the Spirit. We were justified. We were made heirs. And it's just it's just black and white. We're just sitting, and God came and saved us entirely, not on the basis of us or our deeds. I want to show you this to you from another passage, just to hit this point home. So turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. I'll give you a moment to find it if you need to get there. Ezekiel 36. I want to show you one more passage. It just so clearly displays God's sovereignty and and salvation. And at the end of the day, it's it's just what the Bible teaches. It's clear. Ezekiel 36 is one of these key chapters in the Old Testament where God is promising salvation, this new covenant salvation for his people. And like I did with Titus chapter 3, all I want to do is just read through this passage with emphasis, and you tell me, is God being displayed as the one entirely responsible for our salvation? Ezekiel chapter 36. Let's start at verse 24. Verse 24. God's promising this new covenant salvation. He says, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain and multiply, and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Let's stop there. We can keep going, but is that clear? I mean, keep a a bookmark, keep a finger in Ezekiel 36, but we'll come back. But it's just... You just see how clear it is. God is the one. He's going to do this. This is his promise, his salvation. He's going to provide the power, the transformation to change you, to speak life into you. You can turn back to Titus 3, keeping a finger in Ezekiel 36. But through and through, you can see God is in charge of saving sinners. That's his business. And you can't simplify this reminder any more than verse 5 does in Titus chapter 3. He saved us. That's the reminder. But just like last time, though, Paul has more to say. He doesn't stop there. He's got more to say. There are more details of our salvation that we want to pay attention to here and remember. So let's, let's do this. From, four, from verses 4 to 6, let me show you three aspects of your salvation. And the second reminder, what happened to you. Now let me show you three aspects of your salvation within this. Three aspects of your salvation. The first being... The manifestation of your salvation, in verse 4. The manifestation of your salvation. Verse 4 says, But when the kindness of God our Savior 
and his love for mankind appeared. Let me just stop there. Verse 4 starts with just a sharp and pronounced contrast. Verse 3, we were sinners. We were evil. We were vile. We were wretched. We were lost. But, verse 4, what does it say? Even while all that was true, verse 4, we, we really cleaned ourselves up nicely. No. We really, you know, got our lives back on track. No. It says, but, verse 4, God's kindness and God's love showed up. That's what happened. God showed up to save us. This is the manifestation, the appearance of your salvation. It's the appearing of God's kindness and love for mankind, as verse 4 says. God's kindness is his genuine goodwill and generosity and goodness toward man. It, it is his love for them. And, and listen, you should be very thankful for God's kindness. Yeah. Romans 2.4 Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Yeah. That God would show you his kindness even though you hated him should bring you to your knees and, and just praise and thanksgiving that you've received this kindness. And furthermore, that should be sufficient motivation for you to show the same kindness to others. This is something you need to remember. Along with God's kindness, in verse 4, what else shows up? It says, His love for mankind. And that phrase, love for mankind, it's actually just one word in the Greek. It's philanthropia. His love for man. It's his God's compassion on the lost. It's his desire to deliver them from their suffering. And you put these two together, his kindness and his love for mankind. This is what led God, in large part, to make the ultimate sacrifice and to send his son to accomplish this salvation. And isn't that what the most famous verse in the Bible says? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. 4, verse 17, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is what makes him God, as verse 4 says, God our Savior. He's God our Savior. And through the initiation of God, we are reminded first of the manifestation of our salvation. This is the first aspect of our salvation here. There's another, the second one, the second aspect of your salvation listed is the basis of your salvation. The basis of your salvation. The first half of verse 5, which reads, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. You stop there. What I love about verse 5 is the word order. And you can't quite pick up on it on English because they switch things around a little bit. But in the Greek, the word order goes like this. Verse 5. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, he saved us. You catch that? He kind of throws, he saved us to the end. And he brings to the front, he emphasizes the fact that whatever our salvation was based on, it's not us. At the very least, it wasn't us. It wasn't our doing. It wasn't our righteousness that saved us. Our salvation is not based on what we have done. 
if you've been a Christian for any length of time, and if you've gone to a, you know, a good Bible teaching church, then you're surely familiar with Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It's like that key, popular, often quoted text. If you're not familiar with it, go, feel free to turn there with me now, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. The church has really picked up on this passage as being the key text that shows that our salvation is by faith and not by works. And it's really clear. If you want to know why, just read the verse. It's, it's very clear showing that our salvation is by faith and not by works. In the Reformation, this was a huge verse against the Catholic Church teaching work salvation. Let's just read it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as, as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's clear. It's very straightforward. Salvation, not as a result of works. Now, a point I want to make in Titus 3 is that our verse, Titus 3.5, it's just as, if not more clear on this point. I mean, look at Titus 3.5 again. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. It's just so clear. We've made this point often in Titus, so I don't need to spend a lot of time on this here, but the point is this, plain and simple, our deeds do not contribute to our salvation at all. It's not about being a good person. It's not about coming to church, doing good things, helping the poor. Yeah, those are good. Those follow out of or flow out of salvation, but that's not what it's based on. And not only are we not righteous before God in and of ourselves, but even if we could, you know, tip the scales in our favor through our works, it would take an infinite number of good works to outweigh our infinite debt of sin. And it's just not even possible. It has to be by grace. Salvation has to be by grace or nobody gets saved. Quick side note here. I don't know about you, but I find this to be one of the most compelling arguments for the Christian faith. Think about this. Every other religion in the world, every single one, you name it, is a works-based religion. You ever think about that? Every single one. Every religion or philosophy or worldview is works-based. Islam, Catholicism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Mormonism, modern Judaism, Jehovah's Witnesses, you name it. Every single one. I think every world religion, they get a portion of the problem correct. All people have this understanding, something's wrong with our condition and we're to blame. They pretty much get that. As much as people want to deny and suppress their consciences, people know they've sinned before God. They can ignore it all they want, but people know they have sinned, they have done wrong before their creator. You're programmed with that knowledge. You can't escape it. However, the world religions fail to recognize just how really bad this problem is. And they fail to recognize just how holy God really is. Therefore, they're led to think that they can get to heaven or reach nirvana or escape the world or whatever they want to say through their effort, through their works. This is why Catholics go to Mass. 
This is why young Mormons spend two years as foreign missionaries. This is why Muslims pray, fast, go to pro, go on pilgrimage. It's because they think they're earning God's favor. They're earning something with this. But biblical Christianity is, no joke here, it's the only religion or worldview that doesn't think or operate like this. It's the only one. Christianity is the only system to realize that before a perfectly righteous and holy God, no amount of effort or works can outweigh even a single offense or a single sin. If you commit a crime today and you got caught, it doesn't matter how good you are. You're guilty, you're going to be judged, and that's called justice. If you have a righteous judge, he must punish those who have done wrong. It doesn't matter how good you are, and God is just like this. He's perfectly just. In Exodus 34:7, he must punish the guilty. It's part of his perfection. And only Christianity realizes this, that there's nothing you can do on your own. So like I said, to me at least, that is extremely compelling evidence or an argument for the, the reality, the truthfulness, the veracity of the Christian faith. It's the only worldview that is true to the actual nature of God and who God is. You might think, though, for a second, you know, wait a second, if that's true, if every person is a sinner, and if God is perfectly just like this, and if there's really nothing we can do about it, then how do we escape this fate? I mean, doesn't that mean we're all going to go to hell? I shared the gospel with a lady once, and I went through this, and, and that's what she said. She said, doesn't that mean everyone's going to go to hell? And I, I told her, yes, that's exactly what it means. That's the correct conclusion. Everyone will go to hell if God himself doesn't intervene. If he doesn't do something, everyone would simply perish because there is nothing you can do about it. But what does our text say? Verse 5, Titus 3. He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. If God didn't step in, if he didn't do something about our lost and helpless condition, there would be no salvation. If it weren't for God's mercy and God's grace, no one would be saved. But God chose otherwise. And although we've done nothing to earn this or deserve it, we reap the benefit. And that's a great thing to remember. So what we want to remember, the basis of our salvation. It came by God's mercy. That mercy, though, didn't come free. As mercy was not free, it came at a price as it had to. What was the price? of God's mercy. The price was the blood of Christ. And this leads us to the third aspect of our salvation here, the means of your salvation. The means of your salvation. And the rest of verse 5 through verse 6. Look at the middle of verse 5. Well, we'll just start at the beginning. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by, now we're talking about means, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. First here he mentions the washing of regeneration. This word for washing, literally used, 
of washing, of bathing with water. But this washing of regeneration, it's no ordinary bath. It seems about you know every decade or so, there's a massive oil spill somewhere in the world, about every decade. And as a result, thousands of birds or wildlife, they're just blanketed with that thick black oil. You've seen the pictures, you know. And so rescuers come in because they know the birds, for instance, that they will die. They will shortly die from that condition. They come in, they set up the beach, they, they grab the birds, they fill up these huge basins with soap and water, and they start scrubbing. And in doing so, they give the birds new life. They were going to die from their condition, but they were washed and they were saved. And as you can probably piece together, this is what the Holy Spirit does for us spiritually. We were spiritually dead, but he brought us to life through the washing of regeneration and renewal. Renewing here in a text, it means just that. It's the action by which a person becomes spiritually new. You've probably seen those ads for, you know, those women facial scrubs. And they promise to rejuvenate and refresh and renew your skin. Well, that's what the Spirit does for your soul. It's just that if you wash with the Holy Spirit, you don't get new skin, you get new life. And this word for regeneration in the Greek, it's formed by, they take the word for birth, and the word for new or again, and just cram them together. It's one word, and it means born again or new birth. To be regenerated here is to be born again. It's to be made new and to receive new life. In fact, this word for regeneration, it was used by other Greek authors to describe the coming of spring and all the changes that spring brought. In fact, if you ever if you ever seen or read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know about this. Remember at the beginning, Narnia, frozen over, right? Totally frozen over. The rivers were solid ice. The trees were bare. The flowers were empty. The sun did not shine. Nothing seemed to move. The land was just dead. But then, when Aslan came, what happened? The winter faded away, gave rise to spring. The rivers melted. The waterfalls flowed. Flowers blossomed. Grass sprouted. Trees bloomed. The sun was shining again. And this is a picture of regeneration or the new birth. This is what it looks like to be born again. And this is what happens to you spiritually. That's salvation. It's life from death. And he says it's the Holy Spirit here who washes us like this to produce new life within us, enabling us to respond to God. And once again, notice how totally passive this is on our part. Think about think about it this way. Did you choose to be born the first time? Did you choose to have your parents bring you into this world to be conceived, to be born? I'm pretty sure that as a little embryo, you had no say in the matter. You just kind of go with the flow. And the same is true spiritually. God spoke life into your lifeless soul, and through the Spirit you were born again. I told you to keep a finger in Ezekiel 36. Well, let me cash in on that. So turn back there now. Ezekiel chapter 36. What did God promise with this new covenant? What was he going to do? What what was he promising here in, in this text? He was promising new life. 
He's promising what Titus 3, 5, and 6 describe. Let's just read again verses 25 through 27. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is what he's doing. This is what salvation is. He's bringing new life, regeneration, life from the dead. Same thing that Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. Remember that? Nicodemus coming up to Jesus at nighttime saying, what must I do to be saved? What, what is the salvation? What, what are you teaching here? And Christ told him, no one can enter the kingdom unless he's been born again and born of the Spirit and of the water, which is a reference here to our Ezekiel text. You have to be transformed by God before you can even respond to him and be saved. And this is what our salvation is based on. You can turn back to Titus now. Back to Titus 3. All this comes, as Titus 3, 6 goes on to say, through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's how this actually comes to us. The mercy of God and the washing of the Spirit come to us based on what Christ did on the cross. That's how we're actually able to be forgiven. That's the transaction that took place. On the cross, he purchased our salvation by shedding his blood, and he paid for our sins. Remember that infinite debt that we cannot repay? He paid for it. How can he pay an infinite debt? Well, being fully God on the cross, he was able to take our record book of sins and nail them to the cross and deal away with them. And so we're clean. We can be forgiven through what he did. And this is what makes him, as verse 6 says, Christ our Savior. Verse 4, God our Savior. Now verse 6, Christ our Savior. And both are true. You just have to ask, is Jesus your Savior? Have you placed your faith and trust in him for forgiveness and for God's mercy? Some people, they seemingly need to hear the message a hundred times before it sinks in, before it actually penetrates their heart and changes them. That's why I keep repeating it. But don't let another day go by without being certain of your faith in Christ. True, we're saved entirely by God's grace and his mercy. But he does call us to respond in, in a genuine faith and repentance where we must turn away from our sins, our sinful lifestyle, and turn toward him in faith and trust. We give him our lives like David. We learned of David giving God his heart this morning. That's what it takes. The manifestation of your salvation, the basis of your salvation, the means of your salvation. You put these three together and you get another huge reminder. And what's the reminder? Remember what happened to you. Remember what happened to you. Remember your salvation. And truly, a day should not go by where you fail to recall this. You really should be thinking about this every single day. It should just be at the front of your mind. For when you do remember what happened to you in salvation, it changes you. It changes your life. It directs you. It controls you. How could it not? As you recall what God did to save you, the price he paid, and you didn't deserve it. 
How could you not overflow with praise, thanksgiving? How could you not offer him up your life and worship? God wants you to daily remember what he did, and then he wants you to daily worship him, not only with your lips, but also with your lives, how you actually live. He wants you to be holy. Like we just learned, that holiness doesn't earn you your ticket in, but it is the result of one who has been born again. There is a problem, though. There is a problem with remembering something every single day for the rest of your life. And that problem is familiarity breeds contempt. Ever heard that saying? Familiarity breeds contempt. It means when you hear something over and over and over again, you start to tune it out. It becomes dull, boring, unoriginal. I've heard that a million times. Has your salvation become boring? Think about that. Have you heard the gospel so many times that it no longer excites you? It no longer moves your heart to worship. It happens. Christians can fall into that trap. If you've fallen into that trap, you have to catch yourself and stop yourself. Don't let yourself get to that place. That's the place of spiritual stagnation. Rather, go back to the cross. Go back to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Encounter Christ. See your Savior. And let that spark rekindle into a flame of, of passion and, and desire for Christ. We often say, you know, Christians are on fire when they get saved, but then they kind of dwindle down. You should be on fire always. That should just be how you operate. But even if you've been saved for decades... As you remember Christ, let it stir fresh affection and worship in your heart every time. Keep your heart soft and fresh and open to what God has done. And you know how you do that and foster that? By remembering what happened to you each and every day. The result, you will live a life of renewed daily worship. Remember who you were. Remember what happened to you. There's one more reminder in our text a final one, a third one, from verse 7, remember who you are. Remember who you are. From verse 7. He says, So that, being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Really, this is the result of your salvation. Because of God's love, because of his kindness, because of his mercy, and now verse 7, because of his grace, you are saved, and he says you are justified. You're justified. You're declared righteous before God, not because you actually are righteous, but because Christ is righteous. And you are declared not guilty before God, not because you actually are not guilty, because Christ has taken your guilt. That's what it means to be justified. You are in right standing before God because Christ took your guilt and you took his righteousness. It's the great exchange. You traded him, your guilt, for his perfect righteousness. So now, who are you? Who are you now if you've been saved? If this has happened to you, who are you? For one... He says you are a justified sinner. 
And that's encouraging to think about. As a Christian, you're still a sinner, but now you're a justified sinner. What does that mean? Well, once you're saved, even when you sin, God may reprove you, but there's no more wrath. There's no more condemnation, as Roman 8, 1 says. Only love remains. God, he can't remove his smile from you now. He can't get wrathfully angry with you anymore. It's not even possible because there's, there's no more wrath left. It, it's been paid for. It is finished. It's been spent on the cross. And you're eternally now only an object of his love. And that's, that's an amazing place to be. There's nothing left for God to judge you for. And it's not because you're sinless. It's because you're forgiven. And there is a difference. It's because you're justified. And that's now who you are. You're justified before him. And that's encouraging a reminder. And as Christians, when you struggle with sin, you should feel bad. You should feel guilty. And that should lead you to repentance. That's good. But you should not doubt God's love for you. That's merely an insult to the cross. He's already shown you way too much love for you to ever doubt that. And remembering how he first loved you and still loves you, that should be enough to wrench you from your sin and say it's not worth it and turn away from it. So you're first a justified sinner. Secondly, he says, you're an heir. Who are you now? Secondly, you're an heir, an heir according to the hope of eternal life. It doesn't say you will be an heir, that you could be an heir, but that you are. Right now, you're an heir as we speak. You know what's the next best thing to having $10 billion? Having parents who have $10 billion. Because you know, sooner or later, a good chunk of that change is coming to you. That's kind of morbid. It's the only illustration I can think of. But God is spiritually rich. But that fortune, it's yours now. His fortune belongs to you now. Yeah, you'll see more of it in the future, in eternity future, but right now you're an heir. And that spiritual richness belongs to each and every one of you who knows Christ. Galatians 3.29 says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So do you belong to Christ? I'll ask again. The reminders that we've, that we've been talking about, are these reminders or is this new information? You can change today. You can make a decisive break with your past right now. You can change. You can be saved and transformed like we've talked about. You can be justified right now. You can be made an heir as we speak. Simply by turning from your sins and turning to Christ in faith. Have you done that? Or will you do that? For those here today who might not know the joy of salvation that we speak of, you need to look to Christ and find it without delay. And for the rest of us, these are three essential reminders that really should change the way you live. Remember who you were, remember what happened to you, and remember who you are. And regarding these last two reminders, like I did last time, I want to finish by giving you some applications to consider. Because I said, I made the claim, these should change the way you live. Well, how? I mean, how should these actually change the way you live? Let me give you some suggestions. There are three ways in particular, three applications here. Number one, the first one is this. Remembering what happened to you should move you to worship. 
we kind of touched on this before, but as you remember your salvation, that all that God did for you should move you to some serious worship. Right now, just, just stop and think. Now, you were once dead, but now you're alive. You were lost, but now you're found. You were separated, but now you're reconciled. And it was all for free. All came as a free gift. If that doesn't do anything for you, if that doesn't affect your affections for God, if, if that doesn't move you to worship, there's something wrong with you. And there may even be a chance you're still dead in your sins. When Jesus healed the paralytic in the synagogue so that he could walk, how did he respond? What did he do? He praised God. When Jesus healed the man born blind in John chapter 9 and then led him to salvation, what did he do? He worshipped Jesus. When thousands of people got saved in Acts chapter 2 and came to the Lord, what did they do? They worshipped God. Remembering what happened to you should move you to worship God, not only in your heart, but also with your hands. It should lead you to daily display worship by living righteously for the Lord. Secondly, now remembering what happened to you should move you to mercy. Think about that. Remembering what happened to you should move you to mercy. Remember the parable Jesus told in Matthew 18? I love this one. I use this often. A slave owed his master 10,000 talents. In today's terms, that's you know, billions of dollars. There's no way he's paying this back. He's got this debt he cannot repay. So he comes before his master and he just begs, like, give me a chance. The master was going to sell him, sell his wife, sell his children, sell his property, and try and recoup some of his losses. But he saw the slave begging and he felt compassion on him. And so he chose to forgive him. He didn't say, pay me back. He said, you're free. The debt, free, taken care of. I forgive you your debt. It was amazing. But as the slave left, he found a fellow slave who owed him, you know, roughly, we could say, you know, a couple thousand of dollars or something like that. And so he started choking the fellow slave and demanded repayment. He said, pay me back now. And he couldn't pay. So he had him thrown into jail until he could repay. When the master heard about this, he was outraged. And what did he say? Matthew 18, verse 32 you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And as the Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. You get the point. God showed you so much love and kindness, and mercy, and grace, salvation. And he now wants you to show the same to others. You may be thinking, but yeah, you don't, you don't know this person who sinned against me. And they really deserve it. I mean, they deserve my anger, and my wrath, my judgment. You need to remember, you deserved God's wrath, anger, judgment. The whole point of mercy is, you didn't get what you deserved. That's, right. That's what mercy is. Not giving people what they deserve. And as you remember the mercy God showed you, let this move you to show the same mercy to others. One last application here. Remembering who you are should move you to godliness. 
Remembering who you are should move you to godliness. As you think about the third reminder we covered, remember who you are, that should move you to godly living. You know, you've been saved, you've been justified, you've been made an heir. You're now God's adopted child. Don't you think you should live like it? God has transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Don't you think you should act like it? That's the point. And you need to now, because of who you are, live in a manner appropriate of your new status. God saved you. He's made you a citizen of heaven. So live like one, here and now, as you were saved for this purpose. As Ephesians 4, 1 says, now walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Remember who you were. Remember what happened to you. Remember who you are. Keep these three reminders with you. Let them just come up in your mind and their applications often. And let them move you to a life lived for him. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord who is in heaven, we bow before you and we we thank you again for these reminders. We need them. We confess we need them often. We are so prone to wander, to forget, to get distracted by the world and the passing pleasures it offers, Lord. So we thank you for any reminder we receive. And just as time in your word has been uh, encouraging to our souls, I pray, help us all to, to not forget as we leave from here to continue to place these reminders in front of us often of who we were, what happened to us, who we now are. May we live in light of them. You've given us so much and you've done so much for us. How can we not worship you? How can we not be kind and merciful to others? And how can we not just live godly lives now, giving ourselves unto you, not to repay, but just to worship the God who saved us. So we thank you again. We praise you again. We offer ourselves up again. Bless us as we go from here. May we remember you always. In your name we pray. Amen.